This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Supreme Court will hear oral arguments tomorrow that could shape the future of the state's political maps. This comes after the court ruled last year to take a, quote, least changes approach to the new districting maps. The court will hear arguments starting at 9 a.m. from both Democrats and Republicans on the future of the maps. Both sides will state their case on how the new map should be redrawn, with arguments expected to go for at least five hours. WRT will have more on the oral arguments tomorrow evening. In an effort to address significant hiring difficulties around the state, Wisconsin Republicans introduced legislation today that would tighten unemployment benefits and Medicaid coverage. The proposals to change unemployment benefits include limiting food stamp eligibility to three months if recipients don't meet work requirements, as well as increasing auditing requirements for work search actions of recipients. Legislation also takes aim at reducing Medicaid benefits by stripping this assistance from able-bodied adults who turn down a job offer and stopping the automatic renewal of the benefits. Assembly Democratic Minority Leader Greta Neubauer of Racine said these bills will undermine benefits that families need to survive while Wisconsin's unemployment rate is low. The State Department of Workforce Development reported that Wisconsin's unemployment rate was 3% in November 2021, the most recent month this data is available. Wisconsin Assembly Majority Leader Jim Steinecke, a Republican from Kakana, announced today that he will not seek re-election this year. Steinecke stated that he will remain committed to advancing conservative policies, building on his legacy and working with other Republicans on passing what's known as right-to-work legislation and overhauling wage laws. The Republican announced at a press conference that he believes it is time to, quote, pass the torch, end quote, and will return to the private sector. One internal and one external candidate were chosen as finalists for the University of Wisconsin System President vacancy. Attorney Jay Rothman and UW-Eau Claire Chancellor James Schmidt were named as finalists after more than two years without a permanent system president. Rothman is chairman and CEO of Foley & Lardner, a Milwaukee-based law firm that operates internationally. He has not worked in higher education before. Schmidt has been chancellor at UW-Eau Claire since 2013. He believes his knowledge of the UW system gives him an advantage in the hiring. Final interviews for each candidate started today with plans to name the next president by the end of January. The Madison Metropolitan School District is asking for help from the community to keep schools open. Amid dire staffing shortages caused by the pandemic, the district is looking for volunteers to serve as bus drivers, food service staff, MSCR staff, substitute teachers, and other roles. Superintendent Carlton Jenkins stressed in an interview last week that the district needs community members and local businesses to step up so that school buildings can remain open. The district opened its volunteer portal online after almost two years of restrictions on in-person volunteering. All volunteers must be vaccinated. The Madison City Council is meeting tonight to, among other things, discuss a pilot program around body-worn cameras for police officers. The Common Council meeting starts at 6.30 p.m. and will be held virtually. You can find all details for the meeting at the City of Madison's website. And now on to today's top stories. A 
If you were in New Glarus last weekend, you may have heard the sounds of bells and yodels floating on the cold January air. If you had followed those sounds to their origin, you likely would have been left with more questions than answers, as four men adorned in pine branches paraded through the small village, belting out traditional Swiss yodels and ringing bells of various sizes to ward off evil spirits. Sylvester Clausen is a traditional Swiss New Year celebration, and on Saturday it came to Wisconsin. WRT contributor Jonah Chester takes us from here. What is Sylvesterklassen? Sylvesterklassen is uh, a New Year's celebration in uh, Canton Appenzell, Switzerland. Um, it's celebrated uh, on what's called the Alta Sylvester, or the Old Sylvester of January 13th, uh, based off the Julian calendar. Uh, we're the first group in, outside of Switzerland to be celebrating it, and uh, we hope to keep this going for many years to celebrate New Year's in the traditional Swiss way. My name is Gregory Long, L-O-N-G. What are you dressed up as right now? Uh, well, we're dressed up in the uh, the what's called the Vushta costume of uh, Sylvester Clausen, the ugly, nature-based, grotesque costumes, as opposed to the schöne, beautiful costumes that they wear in Switzerland as well. So, Gwen, tell me about the cultural significance of this event. In the canton of Appenzell in Switzerland, the uh, people had more time in the winter months to do some fun things. And there, New Year's is celebrated on the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar that we celebrate. So their New Year's is this weekend, and they did this to celebrate, ward off the evil spirits, and they've been doing this for thousands of years dressed in these interesting costumes and having some fun because they didn't have to farm they had some time on their hands for change and they were out having a little bit of fun with their schnapps and their brandies and just having a good time on new year's and celebrating with scaring away the evil spears and going house to house and having a festival what other events are common during this celebration well, I think drinking and eating and celebrating like we do for New Year's. The farmers had worked hard all summer and didn't have much time to party and have fun, and now they did. And they, I know they do make their own schnapps, and at that time they had their own cream and food and stuff they could then store away for these festivals in the wintertime. This is, if I'm correct from the information I have, this is, according to you all, the first time this event has been celebrated is it in Wisconsin or is it in the nation as a whole? In North America. Okay. We know it could be in, you know, in all of America. The first time that they have actually done this. And um, these are, the ty- there's three different types of costumes. And they wore the, the ugly costumes today, dressed up looking more like Christmas trees than anything else. And it's just a really fun event that they're trying to recreate here in, in America's Switzerland and in, in New Glarus, Wisconsin. And uh, we have a lot of fun here and 
it's COVID and yet we're still managing to have fun outdoors and be safe and have a great time. These are the ugly costumes, right? These are these are the ones that are intended to scare away the spirits. So what do the beautiful costumes look like? I've heard those mentioned a few times when talking with folks. The other ones have really ornate, gorgeous, hand-carved headpieces that are just incredible. And then they also dress up as women and men, although they're all men who do this in Switzerland. So they'll be wearing their dirndls or their native female and male costumes and have these incredible hand-carved headpieces that they wear that have been handed down from generation to generation. Doing the same thing with the the noises and the yodeling, but in different wearing different costumes. <laughs> One final thing, what, what are these bells you have around here? What's, what's the purpose there symbolically? Uh, well, the bells are meant to make noise. Uh, they were traditionally used by the uh, dairymen in the Alps of Switzerland to put on their cows, and they're employed in many forms of Swiss music, so it was just natural that it's part of our New Year's traditions. So I'm wearing the smaller bell harnesses, and then two of us are also carrying the larger cowbells as well just to uh, you know, make some noise and scare off some evil spirits to ring in the new year. For WORT, I'm Jonah Chester. An ongoing state investigation into sex abuse within the Wisconsin diocese got a document dumped today. Whistleblowers within the Catholic Church purport to show evidence of charitable fraud, financial mismanagement, and destruction of evidence related to sexual assault through documents delivered to the Wisconsin Attorney General, Josh Call. WORT reporter Heron Splinter has more. Whistleblowers are prodding the state to take more action in investigating clergy sex abuse. Earlier today, a coalition of survivors and those working to end clergy abuse delivered boxes of documents to the Office of Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call after a few attempts to find the right location to deliver them. Today's document dump was organized by Nate's Mission, an initiative of ending clergy abuse. That organization works across five continents and 29 countries to reform institutions shown to have widespread sexual abuse and cover-ups. The boxes held documents that came from a network of whistleblowers across Wisconsin that purportedly demonstrate cover-ups related to clergy abuse. Uh, Nate's mission was founded uh, last year in memory of Nate Lindstrom, who was a victim of uh, priest's uh, sexual assault as a child, uh, and uh, he took his life, which is sadly not an unusual story. Last April, A.G. Call announced a statewide inquiry into clergy and faith leader abuse. The Wisconsin Department of Justice will be leading an independent statewide inquiry uh, into clergy and faith leader abuse. Last November, Call announced the investigation had also been broadened to include instances of abuse at residential schools. That came amid a wave of national and international reckoning with the history of American Indian boarding schools. As of October, the Department of Justice had received about 180 reports of clergy abuse, or how an institution handled a claim of abuse. Since the investigation started, 
Two cases have been referred for further investigation in Brown County, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Nate's mission alleges that the evidence delivered today will show that the church's number is too small. They say the documents will also show that the Green Bay Diocese destroyed evidence of abuse and committed charitable fraud. Well, what's really significant for us that are in these files is that kind of evidence, evidence of charitable fraud, evidence of financial mismanagement, and specifically why we're here today is the destruction of virtually all criminal evidence and corporate evidence of fraud in the Green Bay Diocese. The alleged destruction of those documents occurred one week after a 2007 Wisconsin Supreme Court decision that allows victims to file suit against the church for fraud. Today's new evidence will help the Department of Justice to investigate the fraud. Sarah Pearson is deputy director of Nate's mission. And we have new information in these documents right here uh, that demonstrates, you know, that sort of uh, deep embedding of this abusive crisis into, you know, just the culture of the organization and of the communities and powerful people that have upheld that kind of culture. So, you know, it would be an utter failure. This investigation would be an utter failure if it fails to address that institutional nature. Peter Isley is the program director at Nate's Mission. He says Senator Ron Johnson may also be implicated in the church's actions as he served on the Green Bay Diocese Finance Council at the time. In November, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel also reported that Wisconsin joins at least 22 other states that have begun abuse investigations into the Catholic Church. Those who have knowledge or experience of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church are encouraged to call 1-877-222-2622. Two zero, or visit supportsurvivors.widoj.gov to report online. For WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. It's now 6.20 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Late last week, a Waukesha County judge ruled that absentee ballot drop boxes are not allowed under Wisconsin law, a ruling that changes how people can vote just a month before the state's spring primary elections. For more, WORT producer Nate Buggyhout spoke with WIS Politics editor J.R. Ross. Drop boxes were used both across Madison and across the state in the 2020 presidential election as the COVID pandemic was making voters feel uneasy about voting in person. But a ruling by Waukesha County Judge Michael Boren on Friday said that they are illegal under Wisconsin law. To learn more about this ruling, I'm joined by J.R. Ross, editor for Wispolitics.com. J.R., thank you so much for talking with me today. Sure, anytime. So just to start, absentee ballot drop boxes have been used for the past year, including the 2020 presidential election. Why now is this specific lawsuit moving forward and who are the parties that are involved? So a couple of things. I mean, remember, we were mostly voting in person in Wisconsin up until 2020. The pandemic changed our behavior of the 3.3 million 
uh, votes cast, for example, in the presidential race, I believe just north of 1.3 million uh, were cast by mail through absentee ballots. Another 600,000 and change were uh, cast in person uh, or uh, absentee ballots dropped off in person either through drop boxes or early in-person voting in the clerk's office. So a really change in how we vote. This became an issue in the post-election lawsuits in 2020 where there are questions about the use of drop boxes. The Legislative Audit Bureau did a, re- a review of the 2020 election and found that basically state law another says you can or can't use a drop box. It doesn't really address it. The Elections Commission in 2020 said, look, here basically are best practices. If you're going to use them, what you can do, how other people use them, that kind of stuff. They gave this guidance. In the lawsuits, former President Trump challenged the use of drop boxes that they were illegal. Others raised concerns about them. They didn't go anywhere. But now we're kind of having this conversation post, you know, post-election and pre-2022, how should these be used, if they should be used? Uh, the legislature, Republicans, and the Senate and the Assembly had proposed some bills that would limit their use, but clearly authorize them in state law. That didn't go anywhere. Um, Governor Evers is opposed to limiting their use in a lot of ways. He wants it to be as easy as possible to drop off absentee ballots. But now we have these lawsuits going through the courts trying to get a clarification of what does a law mean. This is one step in the process. I guarantee you there will be more laws or more court actions before it's all said and done. We may see the Supreme Court weigh in because the state Supreme Court was asked to take a case directly uh, some months back, and they said, no, we want to go to the lower courts first and have the record flushed out. So now we've got a circuit court decision at the county level. We can expect it at some point reach the state Supreme Court for a final say whether things are allowed or not in Wisconsin. So you touched on this getting appealed possibly in the future, and I want to come back to that. But starting off, I want to talk about Judge Michael Boren. How did he come to the ruling that ballot drop boxes are illegal? Well, there's this phrasing in state law that says basically the elector must either put the ballot in the mail, right, or must be dropped off with the clerk. And there's been this argument about whether those clauses are separate together, like, right, that that, cl- that whole sentence means only the elector may return it in the mail or in person at the clerk's office versus things like having, you know, your spouse return the absentee ballot or can you go put it in a drop box in a, in a fire, fire station or do democracy in the park with Madison, right? There have been these questions about that. Boren saying that to him state law is clear, only an elector may return the ballot. It must be either in the mail or in person to the clerk, which means, one, that ballot harvesting is, under his ruling, not allowed in Wisconsin. Two, you can't use unmanned drop boxes. Now, a clerk can still have, for example, a drop box in the office. Like, you know, you walk in the uh, in the city hall and there's, like, a slot outside the clerk's office to drop a ballot in. That's fine because you have staff there who are manning the drop box, you know, during office hours, that kind of thing. You can also designate an alternative site to collect ballots if that alternative site also allows basically voting absentee. That wasn't what happened with drop boxes, right? They're placed by uh, at libraries and things like that. So it must be a manned drop box to be used, and only two places it can be, either in the clerk's office or a designated alternate site. That's what his ruling means, and it restricts dramatically what some communities can do with these drop boxes. Like Madison, for example, has more of the You still see them outside, like the fire station not far from my house. You still see it bolted to the the curb there uh, right outside the fire station that can't be used 
in the February primary if this decision remains in place for the next few weeks. There's already been a request or a, a motion filed to stay this ruling while it is appealed. There are a number of groups that are involved that are saying that this is too close to the election in February because we have a, a primary in February 15th that you're the judge gave clerks until January 27th, if I remember correctly, to inform elections commission until January 27th to inform clerks they can't use drop boxes February 15th. That's a change within basically two weeks, roughly, of the election. These groups are arguing that's too close because the U.S. Supreme Court has set, uh, set precedent that they don't want big changes to election procedures right before an election. So. Now I wait and see if Judge Bourne will put his ruling on hold while that's appealed on the merits. If he doesn't put it on hold, you could see them going to another court asking that court to put on hold so we have some legal wrangling to do before it's all said and done. But that's the question right now is, under his ruling, it can't be used starting now, well, in two weeks, but will that ruling be in place for February 15th, or might they stay, he stay that as his appeal on the merits, because the big question is really November, right? There's not much on the April ballot. No offense to people running for, you know, election, local elections, those kind of things. But the big deal is the governor's race, U.S. Senate race, you know, attorney general things in 2022 in November. That's the big election people are really kind of watching to see how this is going to impact turnout and how we turn out to the ballots in Wisconsin for what's really highly contested election. Well, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with us here? You know, look, um, this is uh, emblematic of the things we're seeing with elections and that the way we used to vote has changed somewhat, right? We're voting more absentee. What I don't know is, has the pandemic changed behavior permanently or was it temporary? So if you think about it, pre-2020, we weren't using drop boxes in Wisconsin. This is not a huge change. If you go back to, you know, pre-2020, it just wasn't a thing. But things have changed. There's still a pandemic going on. We're still seeing COVID numbers, you know, through the roof right now. We hope they all are going to start going down soon. But our Dropbox is going to be a big deal come November because we're still voting mostly by absentee ballot. Or we'll we be back in the going to the polls in person election day or in the days before during early in-person voting. Or are we going back to our normal behavior? That's the thing I don't know. Uh, and how I don't know how to gauge the impact of this ruling. So I'm not sure I'll be going to vote going forward in Wisconsin. I've been speaking with J.R. Ross, editor at wispolitics.com. J.R., thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with me today. Have a great day. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call wraps up its primer on the student government in place at UW-Madison. Wildlife Weekly helps critters who have been hit on the head. And Radio Astronomy takes an excursion to a lethargic planet. But now we'll take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. 
Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call finishes a series about student government as host Hope Carnop speaks with MGR Govindarajan about some of the parts of student government most people don't see. It does have a lot of power. Um, it does do a lot of things that students really don't hear about. There are meetings that ASM members have with administrations almost daily. Uh, there are changes being made all the time. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. This is the third and final episode in our mini-series on the Associated Students of Madison, the student government of UW-Madison. Today I'm joined by MGR Govindarajan, the ASM Legislative Affairs Chair. Thanks so much for joining us, MGR. Thank you for having me. So can you start out by introducing yourself and what year you are in at UW-Madison and maybe what you study? Um, My name is MGR Govindarajan. I'm a sophomore at UW-Madison. I am majoring in poli-sci and legal studies. How long have you been involved in ASM and why did you decide to get involved in student government? Um, I got involved um, my freshman year around like two or three months into my first semester. I just heard about what this was. I'm like, oh, cool, something that has to do with local student government. I was interested in that being a poli-sci major, so I just joined. Um, Later during my second semester of freshman year, I decided to run for student council and then later for legislative affairs chair and won both those elections. And ever since that, I've been, I guess, directly involved. Um, So I guess roughly about a year and a few months now I've been involved. I just got interested because again, I just wanted to get involved on campus somehow. I got onto campus during the COVID lockdowns and everything. So it was pretty hard to get into anything, and this was pretty easy to get into. Can you explain a little bit what the Legislative Affairs Chair position is all about? How I see the position that I have is that I am the student representative for all of Madison students to any kind of government entity, whether that's um, like city officials, uh, state politics, or anything on the federal level. If there's student advocacy and issues that we want advocated for, that I see that as my job to do so. Just thinking back to last semester, can you describe what a normal day would look like, both as a student and as a chair on ASM managing a lot of responsibilities? Yeah, um, honestly, for me, it kind of depends um, what I end up doing, because I, at the very start, it was difficult for me to figure out how to manage ASM and school life, and I just ended up kind of separating it. So one day I would have like, I would focus almost exclusively on ASM, and then the next day it would kind of be all school stuff. ASM would mostly end up being on the weekends because I don't have classes, obviously. So any normal day can be wake up, wake up at some point, checking emails, going through class materials, homework, and then going to the ASM office in the Student Activity Center, just talking to a, people, a few people, working on projects and campaigns, coming home, doing homework, eating, stuff like that. I'd love to talk a little bit about legislation that you helped propose regarding what the state statute says about shared governance. Can you explain Mm -hmm. um, to everybody what this legislation would do? The legislation introduced at ASM is basically porting a legislation in the state legislature right now. It's been introduced five times and basically this is the first time where we actually have some kind of momentum um, towards it. We are expecting to get a hearing, but then again, there are currently some switch ups within the legislators with like leadership changes. So we're not really sure what's happening currently. 
but we're working on figuring that out. For context, in 2015, what happened was um, students lost the right to be active participants in their student government. Um, and it was changed to become like the language used to be active participants and now it's an advisory to the chancellor. This legislation would basically redo that entirely. And by getting it passed, we would become active participants in our student government, basically working with the chancellor and administration, things like that. Why does ASM believe this is a necessary step in shared governance? And what do you think would change if this were to be passed? So it's, I would say ASM believes it's necessary because over the, at least as far as I've been involved in ASM, I have seen that ASM has had trouble getting certain big pieces of legislation through, whether that was like the COVID relief fund in the last year or things like that. Um, and a lot of that is because there was this kind of like, I would call it a disrespect for shared governance as a principle. Just having students at the table just was not something that took place all that often from my eyes anyway. So if we were to get this legislation passed and it was written into law, it would kind of just enforce the what's already there requiring students to be at the table when we are talking about issues that matter to us. How it would affect ASM, I would guess that it would just kind of require us to work with administration and restructure our relationship. It's going to start a dialogue again. Um, and then we just kind of figure it out from there. Yeah. So have other students at UW system schools responded to this and are they supportive of it? Yeah. Uh, so over the summer, I have tried to talk to a couple other UW system schools. Um, most of them or most of them did not respond just because it was summer and emails and everything like that. And then a few who did respond, the majority who did respond, they were in support of it. However, there just was not a lot of momentum towards um, actually doing too much about it. Um, UW-Stevens Point has been very helpful. Will Schneider, their current president, has currently been um, working with other UW systems schools to create like a statewide shared governance um, organization. And from what I have been keeping up with, that's going pretty well. The, it, we There is a meeting happening at UW-Eau Claire, I believe, in about a month where that will be discussed. Um, other UW schools will be going there. Um, and I'm excited to see what comes out of that. Yeah, so switching gears a little bit and looking ahead to the next semester, which seems kind of far off right now, um, do, do you have any goals for ASM as the Legislative Affairs Chair? Yeah, um, this. so as Legislative Affairs Chair, I also run a committee, and I, I'm going to really be focusing on running that committee this year um, or this semester, just focusing on what the committee members want to focus on, whether that's like, some people want to work on this shared governance expansion thing. Some people want to work on Lakeshore Path Lighting. Uh, there's like marijuana decriminalization and some other projects just floating about. Um, we do want to work on that, just get people involved on other parts of campus, um, bring up student leaders. That was one of the main things that I really wanted to do when I got involved, is that I want to create the leaders of the next session of ASM or whether they want to leave ASM and do their own thing. I just want to give people a chance to become leaders themselves. And that is what I'll be focusing on this semester. Is there anything you've learned over the past year or so by being a part of ASM? Um, the one thing I learned in ASM that kind of surprised me is that it really matters who you have on your side, whether that's legislation or any kind of proposal that you're trying to bring up, is that you will meet a lot of people with different, different opinions, whether they're supporting you or completely against what you are trying to bring up. And just because they are not in favor of what you're bringing up does not mean you should avoid them or trying to get around them. I have found that when you discuss and actually be straightforward with the people who don't uh, who disagree with what you want to bring up, you will end up in a much better position than where you started. You will be able to implement their ideas, how they see things. You will see different problems that they have with legislation 
And overall, it is very helpful when you're talking to people who disagree with you, because maybe at the end of the day, you could come together on a compromise that everyone agrees with. Great. Is there anything else that you think students or the Madison community should know about ASM? Yeah, um, ASM is it's a small organization uh, compared to other organizations on campus on campus, but it does have a lot of power. Um, it does do a lot of things that students really don't hear about. There are meetings that ASM members have with administrations almost daily. Uh, there are changes being made all the time, and we don't hear about it unless it's a really big one, like getting international students paid like they did last year or a couple other things that they worked on this year. But there's a lot of things happening right now. And if you really are interested in pursuing any change on campus, just talk to ASM, just talk to any member on ASM. And I'm sure if it's not already being worked on, it can easily, it can be started up pretty soon. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for our Cardinal call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal call created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Head injuries can be one of the most debilitating injuries to humans and is one of the most common reasons why animals are brought to the Dane County Humane Society. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explains what rescuers look for when they believe an animal has hurt its head. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about head trauma. Now, head trauma is something that we personally see in our clinic very frequently, and I imagine that a lot of rehabilitators all around the country see pretty much the same thing, especially if they live in urban centers. I say that because head trauma is probably one of our number one reasons that a wild animal might be admitted for treatment, and it can be in any range of species that we see. It could be from a songbird that has flown at a high velocity into a window, and a lot of times we see animals that are hit by cars. So this last week we've had a possum that was found by the side of the highway. Although we may not have seen that animal get hit, if we are looking on our exams and, and doing physical diagnostics and other diagnostics, you know, we might be able to say, okay, this animal went through some sort of impact that caused this head trauma. It could be uh, some sort of motor motorized yard equipment. I mean, we've got impact trauma with lawnmowers during the summer season, uh, weed whackers occasionally. You can consider that something that if it hits the head of an animal would be potentially head trauma. And other things, you know, very small or random random things, although we've had a number of cases similar to this this year, golf courses. Maybe you have a golf ball flying at a high velocity and it accidentally hits an animal like a crane or a goose, uh, a turtle. It actually does happen, believe it or not, and so we can consider that head trauma if it affects the head. So really, what is it? Well, okay, broadly, it's just a blow to the head, right? It's, it's some sort of physical trauma and it hits the head and it can come on in a different variety of forms. And really they're like different stages that the head goes through. So there's a degree of severity that varies depending on what has actually hit the animal. Um, it can go anywhere from just soft tissue bruising to an actual concussion. Maybe there's actual loss of normal brain function um, and it's a deep penetrating wound that goes into the head or into the, through the skull. 
the brain if it is affected, whether it's through a very fast movement, the brain inside of the, the skull itself, or if the skull is somehow impacted and then opened, you know, you definitely could have hemorrhaging that occurs. So the brain actually can swell or expand. And there's compression that the brain puts on the bone or the surrounding tissues. And so all of that can cause problems, right? Because the brain is so incredibly important for normal function. So if you have depressed functions or functions that are lost, well, that animal may end up having some sort of permanent injury. And that does not make it very easy for that animal to be released to live a successful life if it's permanent, uh, but it really depends on what it is. So, you know, what are we looking for on an exam to say, you know, we think this is head trauma? Well, the first things we're going to look at um, are going to be, you know, a neurological assessment, you know, looking at their, basically their state of awareness. You know, what is their mentation? What's their behavior like? Is there any sort of involuntary movement? Like they're not able to control a tremor or some sort of circling behavior? That could definitely be an indication of trauma. Posture can also be a big one. So we're always looking on exam. What does that animal look like? Is it a head tilt? And and how many degrees of a head tilt? You know, is it 25 degrees, 45 degrees? Uh, what if the head and the body is tilted in some direction and maybe they're putting weight on two of their limbs, but not all four of their limbs if they're a mammal. So sometimes that can be a bad thing. Uh, you know, obviously it, it takes time and sometimes observation and sometimes medications, but when they have some sort of posture that is abnormal, it doesn't always necessarily change back to normal. Okay, so the next thing that we look at is actually their gait or their movement. You know, are they able to stand or walk or perch or climb? And uh, when an animal is maybe uh, been impacted by head trauma, they might be weak in certain areas. So paresis or paralysis is something that we are definitely testing for on an exam. So if they're paralyzed, it means that if we were to touch an extremity or maybe put light pressure or even deep pressure on an extremity, like a toe or a finger, that animal if it's paralyzed wouldn't be able to feel that and so the nerves may not be able to accurately tell the brain or the spinal cord depending if it's CNS central nervous system or PNS the peripheral nervous system when pain is occurring or when they're being touched right so if you someone touches your hand you should be able to feel it paresis is more of a weakness meaning it's not fully paralyzed but maybe there's a deficit maybe that leg it, it was impacted there's some swelling there's some bruising at a joint or kind of in an area of the, the leg, well, maybe they can't really retract that leg very well because it really hurts or it's painful. And so maybe it's a little bit numb. You kind of have to imagine to yourself in that other animal's place, meaning that, you know, if it was you, would that hurt? Would you not want to move your leg or would you not want to move your foot because it had been, you know, physically injured in some way? But that can all affect their gait or their movement, right? So can they voluntarily move all of their limbs and their tail if they're a mammal or even a bird? We do look for tail response. We want to mark down which limbs are being affected and we look for symmetry. So, you know, what if both legs are exactly the same? Okay, well, that's, that's actually going to be a worse prognosis than something that might be asymmetric where one leg might be a little bit less less functional than the other. Obviously, x-rays and uh, tests are going to hopefully help us to determine if there's anything more or major going on that can be fixed with time and rehabilitation, uh, but it's not always perfect. So, you know, it could also mean that the cervical spine, the uh, spinal cord or the brainstem or something intracranial, if there's pressure, is causing the abnormality. And so that would have to change to be able to 
allow that animal to recover. Ataxia is another thing. Uh, it's when they're not coordinated and they don't really have the normal strength or ability to actually, you know, uh, walk appropriately. Um, and ataxia can be really defined in multiple different ways. You can break it down and you can look up some of the specifics of these, but maybe you have a, an ataxia that causes them not be able to put one foot in front of the other very well. Or maybe the ataxia is just a general like slow walk, but so slow that it's really different from what normal should be. And so we're going to be testing uh, reflexes. We're going to be looking at posture. We're going to be doing a lot of diagnostics. And then our goal is to figure out, okay, if there is not a lot going on that we can see for sure that is an obvious sign of physical trauma, we still try to treat, but we're generally going to start making some decisions within 24 to 48 hours of that event happening with our staff and saying, you know, okay, is this animal improving? Is it declining? Is it eating? Um, you know, what is it doing? And is there anything more we can do to help that animal in rehabilitation? Uh, so head trauma is definitely a big deal. I mean, uh, an animal can be from anywhere from depressed to hyperactive. I would say depressed is more common. They can have what I would consider a really bad headache if they've got head trauma, and it really takes pain medications, it takes time, it takes expertise to treat because, you know, there are certain things that some people might do to treat, like thinking, oh, we should give this animal a nice uh, warm incubator to be in. Well, did you know that that might exacerbate the swelling in the head if that animal has head trauma? Um, so there's a lot that goes into, you know, determining what kind of trauma they have, looking for the signs and symptoms, whether it's physical or just in observation, and then taking the time to treat it to see what is changing, what's improving, what are you doing, and does that make a difference in the treatment process so that you can pinpoint uh, what that injury actually has done? Is it permanent? Is it going to recover with time? And then that ends up being the, ultimately, the decision that ends up for that animal, right? So we either get to continue treatment uh, so that it gets released, or maybe it is permanent and we are not able to release that animal. So if you have any questions about head trauma or you think maybe an animal in your yard has experienced head trauma, whether it's a bird that hit a window or, you know, you accidentally hit something with your car in your driveway, don't feel bad. Just call an expert, you know, hope that maybe we'd be able to help that animal. We understand that it happens sometimes. So our phone number, if you need it, is 608-287-3235. And otherwise, I appreciate that you've been listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This week on Radio Astronomy, feature contributor Melissa Morris travels many light years for a slow dance with an exoplanet. What do you get when you combine a space telescope, a group of space enthusiasts, and a couple of astronomers? A pretty darn cool discovery. Welcome to Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and today I'm going to recount the tale of how a group of folks just like you and me teamed up with astronomers with a ton of data from a space telescope to find a massive Jupiter-sized exoplanet orbiting a star 379 light-years away. 
First, let's set the stage. Searching for and learning about planets outside of our own solar system, or exoplanets, is one of the largest subfields of modern-day astronomy. Most of these discoveries have been made possible using data from space telescopes that are dedicated to observing large patches of the sky continuously. The first of these was known as the Kepler Space Telescope, which was launched by NASA in 2009 with the primary goal of finding exoplanets. But you may be wondering, how do you even find an exoplanet? This is the exact same question astronomers have been grappling with for quite a while. You see, all of those stars up in the sky are incredibly far away, with the closest one being approximately four light years away. This means it takes light emitted by that star four whole years to travel to us here on Earth. To put that into the perspective of our solar system, light from the sun only takes eight minutes to travel to us here on Earth. For Pluto, which orbits near the edge of the solar system, it takes light five and a half hours to travel from the sun to its surface. That's a very small fraction of the distance to even the nearest star to our sun. It's very likely that planets going around other stars are at similarly close distances, making it incredibly difficult to observe them directly. This means astronomers need to get creative. While it's difficult to observe planets directly, it's less difficult to see the effect some of them have on the light coming from their stars by observing what astronomers call a transit. A transit is basically like a partial eclipse. An exoplanet moves in front of the star during its orbit, blocking some of the light emitted by the star and causing it to appear dimmer to us for a brief period of time. Astronomers can see this by monitoring the light from that star over time. If they see a dip in the amount of light the star emits, they can say they've found an exoplanet. Observing multiple transits and measuring the shape of the transit and how long it lasts can provide astronomers with even more information, such as how large the exoplanet is, how quickly it's orbiting, and how far away from the star it is. Searching for transits is precisely what the Kepler Space Telescope was doing as it monitored the brightness of stars over time. It continued its mission for nine years until finally running out of fuel in 2018. However, that was far from the end of the exoplanet hunt, for in the same year, NASA launched the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, which was essentially like a new and improved Kepler, able to observe an area of the sky 400 times larger than that of Kepler. The way that test works is that it observes one area of the sky for about 28 days and then it switches to a new one. Many astronomers use automated computer algorithms to search through the data for stars that have multiple transits, with three transits generally indicating a fairly reliable exoplanet detection. However, to be able to observe three transits in one month, you'd need to be looking for a planet that's very rapidly orbiting around its star. Well, this is what TESS is designed to find, there are many cases in which TESS only observes one or two transits. In these cases, algorithms have a really difficult time identifying these transits as anything real. However, they can still tell astronomers a great deal about planets that are in slower orbits around their host stars. This is where a group of citizen scientists known as the Visual Survey Group comes in. These folks all met through NASA's large citizen science project known as Planet Hunters, where anybody with an internet connection could help sift through Kepler data to find transiting exoplanets. The Visual Survey Group was a group 
of particularly determined people who wanted to continue helping the field of astronomy after the Kepler mission. So they decided to start looking at test data by eye instead of using automated algorithms. This is how they discovered a transit that lasted 24 hours amongst all the test light curves. They alerted a couple of astronomers to this discovery, which immediately intrigued them. You see, most exoplanets don't block the light coming from the star they orbit for nearly this long, so observing this transit must mean they're observing something that's very slowly orbiting the host star. By observing large planets in slow orbits, we can try to understand how they formed compared to their much faster counterparts, or the huge, cool gas giants we have in our own solar system. The astronomers were able to perform follow-up observations of the star hosting this exoplanet and observed the motion of the star due to the planet's gravitational pull. This is how they're able to find out that this exoplanet is a massive Jupiter-sized planet that takes roughly 261 days to orbit its host star. That's shorter than a whole year on Earth and much shorter than the real Jupiter's 12-year orbit. But compared to other Jupiter-sized exoplanets that have been discovered, this planet is considered to be on a very slow orbit with the next transit estimated to be observed by TESS this February. So, while you're out enjoying your Valentine's Day, think of that giant exoplanet 379 light years away that's slow dancing with a star. That's all for radio astronomy this week, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and I'm wishing you a stellar week. And that is it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Heron Splinter and Jonah Chester. Your headline writer was Sophie Leahy. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wakeyhout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>